you know, I'm black, unapologetically so, and I work with the NAACP. Most of the people in the dyslexic advocacy space are white. And so we come in together and they're like, oh, wait a second, both of y'all? Yeah, this is something that affects everybody. From EdPost, it's Across Colors, a new show about how parents and educators from across the country are pushing to make schools better and more equal places for children to learn and grow. Racially segregated schools are not new to Oakland, California. For decades, predominantly black schools have underperformed compared to predominantly white schools. Much of that has to do with resources or how much money schools have to invest. But in Oakland, a battle over how to teach students essential skills like reading has also emerged. Some educators say methods for teaching students to read have long been outdated and have led to low literacy rates among Black, Brown, and poor students. Activists and organizations like the NAACP are now trying to close that literacy gap by implementing newer ways to teach reading that emphasize phonics over rote memorization. But a bigger question remains. How can Black parents and white parents come together to ensure equity for all Oakland students? Joining me now are Kareem Weaver, Oakland NAACP Education Committee member, co-founder of the reading advocacy forum Fulcrum, Oakland, and a longtime leader, school leader, parent, and advocate. Kareem, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tenzing. Nice to be here. Also joining us is Courtney Martin, the author of Learning in Public, a book about her journey as a white parent in an Oakland public school where the largest racial group of students is Black. She's also the co-founder of the Bay Area chapter of Integrated Schools. Courtney, welcome. Thanks so much. Kareem, let's start with you. In the trailer for the forthcoming film, The Right to Read, you weighed in on the national crisis in teaching children how to read. And as you said, quote, it's a national problem that cuts across demographics, but it's painted as a minority issue. Why is that? Tell us what you meant there. Well, I just look at the data. You know, when you go to the NAEP scores, which is like the nation's report card on reading, there is no subgroup. That's over 50%, not one. That includes white kids. So that means half your white kids not, re- not reading. Now, that's national. And if you come to the state level um, and then to Oakland, you'll find that there is general unease about how reading is taught and, and how kids are achieving. Well, what happens is a lot of times as parents get fed up with a system that's not working to teach their kids to read, they just leave. They go elsewhere, they, it's a private school or a charter school or whatever it is. Um, and so what we see after that is something that looks like a minority issue because that's the only one who's left. But other folks have fled. But they fled because they're not happy either with a lot of things, but mainly the fact that their kids aren't being taught to read. The evidence of that is the Kumon centers all over town. You can look in almost any district and you'll see them in certain affluent areas because they know there's a flight where there's an exodus out of the public schools into somewhere that's actually going to get their kids ready for college and and career. But it's painted as a minority issue or a poverty issue or whatever the subgroup is because that's our lens that we see almost everything through in this country. Race does matter. Culture matters. Poverty matters. All these things matter. But fundamentally, 
we're just not teaching kids to read. And that you know, Kareem, I got to say, I was shocked at how far behind students are when it comes to reading. I mean, I remember, you know, growing up in the in the 70s and 80s, we always heard reading is fundamental. And frankly, it's shocking to me that so many young people are struggling to read. Is it really a question of the methodologies that are being used to teach reading? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most of the time we're asked to be very careful with this. Oh, don't say things that'll hurt teachers' feelings or hurt educators' feelings or upset the parents. Or, but if you just look at it from a kid's perspective, you know, the American Federation of Teachers said 95% of kids can learn to read if we follow the science and the research consensus. But for whatever reason, and we could go through them if you want to, we turned away from that. What became popular became and accepted was something that didn't follow the research consensus. So now, instead of reflecting on that and looking at our practices and our materials and our culture around literacy, we blame kids, community, parents. You fill in the blank, you can find a rationale. Uh, whether it's something that is commonly accepted or something you know, on the fringe, but it hasn't been looking at our practice. Yes, it's how we teach them. You can get kids to learn to read. I did it. Kids from all different socioeconomic and linguistic backgrounds. If we have the will to do it and the diligence to actually, you know, look at the research, understand it, and then invest in our educators and their practice. Kareem, it seems pretty, and I, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, it seems like in a functioning system, one would think that you look at the data, you see that students aren't learning to read, and you implement something that changes that, right? And it's, it's apparently, you know, the, the, the emphasis now on phonics, which I had no idea had, had been de-emphasized, frankly. I mean, I grew up in an era of that was, you know, phonics was how we learned to read. But apparently, that's been de-emphasized, and now it's being re-emphasized. Why is it so politically difficult to get this done. If, there, if there's a solution, why can't we just implement it? Yeah. Culture, adult culture um, is the first thing. The second thing is that we center our activities on our own frame of reference. So in other words, the people who run the system, the, the educators, uh, the superintendents, you know, the board members, all the people who most of them navigated the education system well. It worked for them. Okay. So, um, and there's research showing that there's about 40% of kids who don't need a structured approach. It's not just fonts. We can get into that later because that's kind of a buzzword, but it's more than just fonts. But that's a part of it. But there's about 40% of people who, you know, you can teach them almost any way they're going to learn to read. Now, those are the people running the show. And out of love, they want to offer to everyone else what they were offered. And so they don't have the frame of reference to say, wait a second, those kids just don't learn like that. I didn't learn like that. My friends, they're thinking it worked for me and mine. This is the most loving thing I can do for you is to offer to you what was given to me. Unfortunately, uh, that's our biggest misstep. You know, if we had superintendents and chief academic officers and parent leads all around the country who had kids that struggled with literacy or they themselves struggled with literacy or were dyslexic or something like that, it'd be a whole different ballgame. But upon reflection, they look back on their own background and say, well, this is how I did it. This is what worked for me. And so it, unfortunately, it's it's difficult to do to to make changes when you're operating in an echo chamber with people who think and act and process information and have the same experiences 
as you do. That's our biggest challenge with diversity in education. It's diversity of experience. Where are the people who were dyslexic who were superintendents? Where are the people who had reading difficulties who were on the board? I guarantee they wouldn't put up with this nonsense. But everybody else is just voting for things, approving things. You can give them a brochure. It looks good, sounds good, it feels familiar, and they go with it. Um, so that's kind of where we went off track. Um, and we have to have a more inclusive environment in terms of the decision makers and their frame of reference for what actually works for kids and have it grounded in the research and science. How do you get there, Kareem? How do you get to a place where your school boards Oof. and your superintendents and all of the, you know, I come from a family of educators. Both of my parents are public school right. teachers. Both of them came from, you know, the mm-hmm. communities that they taught in. But that is not always the case. And so how do you get to a right. place where your leadership reflects exactly what you said, the, the diversity of experience in the school district that they're representing? It takes courage. It takes a willingness to not be liked and accepted, a willingness to be voted off the proverbial island, um, your organization your, uh, your, you as an individual likely will not be well received because you, you're engaging somebody in the crux of their credibility. Oftentimes it's perceived that way. So it takes, it takes courage, diligence. It takes, um, information. It takes the ability to communicate the way they need it. Working with the NAACP and working with Fulcrum, it works for some people. Some people, appreciate how we message things. There are other people who can't stand us. They're like, oh my gosh, here he goes again. But they might hear somebody else, different color, different different gender, different whatever. And they might say, oh, that makes sense. So you have to have multiple people with the message that we can get all our kids to read. Multiple people and entities and demographic groups saying, hey, look, let's follow the research and the evidence. I don't care how popular this new curriculum is. I don't care how how edifying it feels for you. Let's center these things on kids. That's why I like working with the dyslexic community uh, a lot because, you know, I'm black, unapologetically so, and I work with the NAACP. Most of the people in the dyslexic advocacy space are white. And so we come in together and they're like, oh, wait a second. Both of y'all? Yeah, this is something that affects everybody. So that's the first thing it takes. It takes focus and it takes um, coalition. And a willingness to engage people the way they need to be engaged without blaming them in this hypersensitive education space where everybody feels blamed. I'm not blaming you. We just need to teach our babies. That's all. And we want to have that conversation. Let's talk about that coalition building, because I think it's it's important uh, for the leadership, but it also is often not reflected among parents when deciding where to send their kids to school. And we know that 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 happens across the country. We know that that happens here in New York. Courtney, let's bring you in here because your child goes to a school where the largest percentage of students are black. And according to 2021 rankings, only 12% of the students at your child's elementary school were reading at grade level. Many parents with the power to choose would not send their children to a school like that. Why did you send your child there? Well, thank you, Tanzina. And first, I want to just thank Kareem for his work. And I think the way he frames these things up and talks about them is just so wise and helpful. And and your you know shock, I think it's really Im- important because it's that's how a lot of parents feel 
is this conversation around reading what's the so-called reading wars feels so complex and so surprising. And, you know, I'm trained as a journalist. When I started looking into this stuff in part because I met Kareem at my school's school site council meetings, I was like, this is so hard to understand for me. And I'm a trained journalist, right? And I'm someone with a college degree and all the things that are supposed to set you up to understand the layers of this. And so I think one of one of the things is just helping parents, and this is a lot of what Cream's doing, understand this in a very accessible, basic way because it's incredibly overwhelming and people care so much about their kids and they want to give their kids the best. But when when you see these salacious headlines and you're kind of like, how do I place myself in all this? I just want to make sure my kid can read, you know, so just wanted to say that because I think it's very representative. You know, we chose to send now our two daughters, two white daughters to a black majority school in our neighborhood. You know, the lofty reason is like, you know, I really deeply believe that public schools are the foundation of a functioning democracy and I want to participate in them and I want to be a force for integrating them. You know, black and brown families, indigenous families, Asian American families have have borne the brunt of integrating and the, the discomfort, whether that's social or physical distances that come with that since Brown v. Board and, and we failed. You know, the peak of integration was in 1988 which, you know, was when I was in school. So I was I was horrified to learn that. And I also just really believe that a school is a community and that the kind of experience I want my kids to have is both academic and social. The future of this country is, you know, my two white girls will be collaborating, you know, befriending, loving, neighboring with people of all kinds. And so to to sort of isolate them in a white Um, and privileged environment just doesn't make a lot of sense for the future of the country. There has been, I'm sure um, anybody who follows this space may remember a podcast called Nice White Parents that the New York Times issued a couple of uh, years ago. And what they talked about in that was a small group of white parents entered a majority black and brown school in New York City and reshaped it for their benefit, not the benefit of the children who were already there. So how do we prevent that from happening? Because I think there's a sort of, you know, there's this idea, particularly among white progressives, that they want these things to happen, but they don't particularly want them happening with their children involved. Right. Yeah. The other funny thing about nice white parents was a bunch of white parents advocating for certain kinds of school reforms and changes and then not sending their kids to those schools ultimately. So sometimes I've joked, you know, my book is kind of where nice white parents leaves off. Like if you actually enroll your kid um, right. and you go through the practice of it, not just the the talking about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the, where the interesting and challenging and joyful part is, right. Is actually showing up. And, you know, as much as it's a lesson for my kids in democracy, it's a profound lesson for me in democracy. What does it look like to be on the school site council, which, you know, is the council where we talk about the things Cream's pointing out, achievement scores, uh, spending of Title I funds, all these like challenging, important conversations with a group of multiracial parents. Um, And, you know, for me, that was interesting because when I first showed up, this was five years ago. There were about four white parents sitting in a room, and that was called the school site council. There were no parents of color on the school site council, even though white parents were a vast minority at the school. And this, you know, you see this at a lot of schools. And so part of uh, my journey has been both just trying to understand what the heck a school site council was and all of the jargon and all of the acronyms, um, but also be a force for saying, like, how do we actually make this parent body representative of the students at the school? 
um, and work in coalition as opposed to, you know, a minority of white parents in a black majority school making decisions. And to your point about gentrification, that's a huge issue. And it's one that I think about a lot um, in my life and in the book. There's a school quite close to ours in Oakland that an academic happened to do a study of um, around these issues of gentrification where, you know, a group of white parents who call themselves a critical mass, that's often the buzzword, got together and said, let's enroll our kids in this school, let's make it better. And, you know, within a short period of time, a lot of the Black families who had been at that school for many years felt pushed out and sort of that the culture had been professionalized in this way that was like you had to have a PowerPoint to come up to the parent committee meeting and you had to have a certain amount of money to donate and that that became very alienating. So it is something I think about a lot. You know, big picture numbers here. Not all black and brown people are poor. Not all white people are wealthy. But on average in the United States as a whole, white families have 10 to 13 times the wealth that black and Latino families do. So with that number in mind, you know, broad strokes here. When we talk about integration, are we talking about bringing wealthier white people into schools? I mean, is that that really what this is all about? And to your point, Courtney, when it does happen, do those wealthier white parents who may have more political savvy, who might, you know, because of their, you know, sort of background might be able to end up alienating, as you said, you know, the parents from that community. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where white folks who do show up have to really do their work. And that's this integrated schools movement, which is a national movement. It's got a fantastic podcast if people want to listen, is about how do folks who have the risk of doing that really go through their own self-examination about how do I show up? How can I befriend? How can I collaborate? Um, you know, with with some of what of Kareem is bringing up, for me, it really has been a journey around like what is I, I kind of think of it as like loving accountability look like. Because, you know, I am a white parent in that space. I'm trying to kind of show up, listen a lot, you know, sort of be a little bit of a background player. At the same time, I I really want to be in the meeting saying like, okay, we're looking at the data. Have we broken this down by race? And like, are our black and brown students, you know, reading at the levels they should be reading at? Obviously, the answer is no. So and also being in coalition and, and, you know, relationship with teachers and our principal, we have a new principal this year, so that'll be a new adventure, but like that's complex stuff. And again, that's why I think it's, it's a cool experience of democracy. You know, so much of voting is so uninspiring and obviously we all feel quite alienated right now from, from what's happening in Washington. Like this is, this is the hard stuff and the interesting stuff and the joyful stuff. And so that's part of what's going on. I did want to say around money, great advocate in Oakland, Jeremy Gormley, has done some crunch some numbers, and he found that the OUSD PTA revenue is around $6 million, and 73% of that comes from only seven schools. White students account for 13% of the total OUSD enrollment, and 53% of those students are enrolled in 11 schools with huge PTA budgets. So they're receiving about 545 dollars more per year in PTA funding five times the average non-white student in the district. So, I mean, there are all these steps. It's like you can enroll your kid in a black and brown majority school if you're white. You can just not talk shit about schools you don't know anything about. That's another, you know, big, wonderful thing a white family could do. You could redistribute your funding. And, you know, I would even say, like, could we just abolish PTAs or can we equalize them in ways that there's experiments in places like L.A.? Um, Because money is a big, huge piece of this, as you point out, Tanzania. You know, white parents, so I I got a bone to pick. 
and it may not be the, the common theme here uh, or in a lot of spaces, but it seems as though there is a problem in early education literacy across the board, all demographic groups. White parents know it too. That's the reason why many of them, they're working at home with their kids. They're sitting in the tutoring services, doing all the things they can do to take care of this at home or within their, their financial means. Okay. So, but what about the rest of the kids? I, I, I can appreciate a white parent or a white family saying, you know what? We don't want to rock the boat. We want to be a supportive ally to the system. Um, but there has to be a level of common desperation. That's where the unity comes in. Like I, I am, I am not trying to prop up any institution or I'm, I'm trying to get these kids where they go to, where they need to be. When you do work in prisons, when you do work in the civil rights community, you, you see the, the aftermath of the way we are teaching reading of our assumptions that we won't challenge. And sometimes white parents go to the extreme. It's either hands off. I can't deal with that. And they bounce or they go somewhere else or whatever it is. They get the tutoring and they just, they don't, or they go the other extreme, which is I'm here to support all teachers. I'm about it. I'm a democratic, you know, socialist or whatever their stuff is. And I'm, I'm going to be like the first person on the front lines advocating for whose life matters. What, 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 that's fine. Go do your thing. But what's needed in my perspective, in NWC perspective, allyship means towards a common cause. If the goal is to get kids to read, then that might mean you have to upset the apple cart sometimes. That might mean they might not like you at the board meeting. That might mean that some of the parent groups, black, white, or other, who are arguing about focusing on different things, you might not, you, you might not be aligned with them. And so I'm hopeful. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I connect so well with the, the families in the dyslexic community and the special ed community, because across racial lines, we have a common desperation. Those families know if I don't take care of this, if I don't get my kid what they need. When you're talking about dyslexic students and dyslexia is something that so many mm -hmm. Americans have, and it is probably one of the worst, mm -hmm. you know, treated uh, developmental issues that people are dealing with. Like if you flag that your kid is dyslexic, if you see that your kid is dyslexic, it's a right. journey to get the actual supports that are needed. And in order to get those supports, mm -hmm. you need to understand how to work the system, quite frankly. I mean, am I wrong mm -hmm. about that? Mm -hmm. No, you're, you, you're right. It, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot. So my daughter was just diagnosed with dyslexia last year, last October. And um, ironically, she had been pushed through all this way with the testing. They wouldn't test her. They, you know, traditional public school, they wouldn't test her. They, they were evasive. And here I am, not just an educator, but a civil rights advocate. And I know how to work the system. And I still was put on the back burner. It takes, it takes time, resources, and know-how. Some people go get private testing. Some people, you know, we had a bill or there was a bill in front of uh, Congress this uh, last session um, for mandatory screening for K2. Didn't get didn't even get a vote. It was unanimous in the Senate. Didn't even get a vote in the assembly because of politics here in California. Right. They, people who have kids who are dyslexic, and it's just a processing difference. The main thing is you have got to get kids what they need in regular classroom instruction, 
tier one, your teacher and 25 to 30 kids. That's where it happens. We could talk about the interventions and how, you know supplements and safety nets and all that type of stuff, but you got to start with the regular classroom instruction. Universities are not preparing teachers to support kids with dyslexia. They're just not overwhelmingly so. So teachers are in there flying blind. The curriculum doesn't infuse what's needed for those students in their curriculum. So what are the teachers supposed to do? So for parents, you got to be a tiger. And that's why I say, you know, civil rights community, we we look at those folks. We're like, yeah, that's our speed because they get down because they know that if you don't handle business, your child will get run the heck over. And that's how a lot of minority parents feel. So we got common cause. It's one thing to operate in common spaces, but to have a common sense of urgency is the biggest unifying factor we could ever have. And those kids are the canaries in the coal mine. What they need, everybody could benefit from. Your kid will benefit from learning Latin and Greek and roots and stems and and hearing the sounds, you know, correctly and all that. Everybody benefits from that. You know, your vocabulary, your verbal reasoning, your things on your SAT and ACT, it'll get better, too. Right. So I, I, those parents got to be diligent. They got to be hardcore. And that's really the attitude that we need. There's a federal lawsuit that was settled in Berkeley Unified recently where the parents, you know, took the district to court because they weren't giving the students with dyslexia what they needed. And it was settled out of court, I think, 50 million dollars or something like that. But there's people all across the country who are paying attention to that because doesn't my child also have the right to quality education? a free and appropriate education in tier one classroom instruction, not in some side room down the hall. So yeah, it, it takes a lot for parents to advocate, but that's your job. You got to do well, it. And, and also Courtney, I want to bring you in here because I feel like that's where white parents who might have a little bit more wealth, who might have more savvy, who might be have more time potentially, or more know-how about the system. If they're, as you said earlier, they're, they're dominating, you know, the school boards and everything else. Like, is that what white parents can do to empower parents of color and others who are trying to navigate this system? Is that one of the roles that they can have without domineering, without leaving people out, without making people feel like, who are these people who just came into my neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, you have to have some faith, some serious faith in, faith in white folks to think that they can do that. I think... There are ways in which, you know, in in deep, real friendship, like the kind Kareem is talking about between the dyslexic community and the civil rights community, where like they're really building together and there's, you know, just a real clear sense that they understand each other's motivations. They understand the strategy. They're they're in lockstep. That works. A lot of times I think what happens is and I think this is a little bit about what Kareem was getting at with this, you know, socialist, democratic, whatever, is like white folks get kind of fall in love with their own role as you know the people who are going to speak for others and they you know they're advocating for various causes and then folks of color sometimes feel like you know you're not actually speaking for me like this is not actually what i want to prioritize this is not actually how i feel about this issue and because we're not in real lockstep relationship you don't realize that but but this actually feels patronizing right so unfortunately i think it, it, particularly in this kind of political climate that we're in that also happens. This is not to say people, you know, that white folks shouldn't be allies and shouldn't, you know, be in lockstep like Kareem is talking about. But I do think it takes a certain amount of real relationship building as opposed to just sort of latching onto something and deciding like you're going to be the one to speak for that because you have some extra resources or some extra relationships. I mean, it raises eyebrows, I think, among um, people in communities that have been historically disadvantaged. What exactly are they going to do? What are their motivations? You know, 
um, for the historical reasons that we've all been talking about, a lack of solidarity, a lack of allyship, you know, among these communities. And are they coming here to help us or are they coming here to help themselves? Right. Or save us or, you know, see themselves as as benefiting in some emotional ego centric way. I mean, there's so many reasons to be distrustful. And that's why I think it's important when white parents do decide to be a force for integration, that they show up consistently, that they don't leave, because that's a big thing also as white folks come, you know, kind of try to try to save everybody in the school and then leave and leave folks kind of high and dry. So it's like, show up, stay put, you know, I, you know, going on my fifth year at the school we're at, and I still feel like I have a lot to learn about a lot of things at the school and how it works and how to, you know, be a, a leader that I, I feel proud of within that context. And, and really having that like humility and understanding that people might not trust you at first, you just got to keep showing up. And the question of, are they helping you or are they helping themselves? I mean, let me just say, it just so happens that when it comes to literacy, we have a common cause and common destiny. Because what's going to help a, a, a black child is going to help a Latino child is going to help a white child. There may be some linguistic variation, et cetera. Yeah, fine. But the core elements of what makes an effective reading program is the same. And so what we can't have is people shrinking from their duties and responsibilities virtue, their privilege, virtue, their economic resources, virtue, their relationships with people in control and in power, uh, because they're, they've got some philosophy about being deferential and, and lionizing that, as opposed to saying, listen, we got a common cause here. Let's go together. And I'm going to bring my full self to bear. That means my resources, my connections, my, my whatever. I, I want to push everybody push everybody, the quote unquote science of reading or how you teach. It's not a uh, uh, political ideology or philosophy, none of that. It's just what research shows is the best way to get the most kids to read. That's in everybody's best interest. So we, if we can't get along and, and, and you know, support each other in a common cause for this, I'm not sure what there is. I wonder if around. the school districts in Oakland were sort of forced is, I guess, a word to, to use here, um, to do busing, to integrate uh, without all of this political battling, how that would go over. Well, let me just say from a historical lens and having sat in superintendent meetings and, and meetings with other folks where they presented their regional analysis and all this, Oakland's kids are traveling more miles in the morning than anybody else to find a school they think fits them, their work and their location and whatever they think is a priority. They're going all over the place trying to find the right school. What I would say is those type of things, like you can't force people to go someplace they don't want. I mean, you can, but it's going to be problems. The challenge is that after first and second grade, the issues harden. Kindergarten is not an issue. First grade is really not that big an issue. By second grade, when you have this divergence, because you have a class full of kids who can't read, what do you think happens to those kids? What do you think that classroom environment is like when they can't read in mass? And that some kids have the resources or some families have the resources to support them with other supports off the grid while the others are stuck in that classroom, not getting the help they need eventually what happens to those groups of children, so we can look at it in terms of race and movement and all that, but eventually it's, listen, chaos ensues. When you have a room full of kids who can't read and it's third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, nobody, 
Nobody wants that for their child. So the question is, in my mind, how can we resolve these type of things early on? How can we make sure kids are getting what they need in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, so that the environment is conducive to collaboration, is conducive to integration. So all our isms don't come in to try to explain the differences. Instead, we can say, oh, these are all kids. Oh, they all can read. Oh, they all can do this. They all can do that. It magic happens when you have people together of goodwill and they're not blaming each other or, or attributing the differences by the, based on their own background and mindset. And frankly, we're not there yet. So I say, let's focus on getting the kids they need to be by first grade and, and magically, <laughs> magically, this, you know, white flight, you what some people want to call it. Um, you know, I don't blame anybody for trying to find the best environment for their kid. I, you know, I don't do it. But at the same time, come on now, the kids can't read in first grade and you get your kids tutoring. And I'm sitting here stuck on stupid because my kid, you know, can't can't read, can't write, can't spell and has no way out. It's going to eventually be a problem and it's going to be on your doorstep unless you're willing to have common cause and suffer to make things better. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I immediately kind of laughed because a big thread of my book and and what we lived through right before COVID was a very small experiment in that, which was, you know, a, a whiter, wealthier Hills school in Oakland was asked to merge with a Flatlands Black majority school. And the Black folks at the Black majority school importantly said, sure, come, you know, like we need resources at, to Cream's Point. We want our kids to read like the evidence shows that this might help us. Um, we w- we are willing to welcome you. The white parents, you know, and privileged folks went nuts in the school board meetings. Incredibly alienating behavior that was so painful to watch. And I kept thinking, you know, I love how Cream always centers kids. I kept thinking, like, if we put a bunch of kids, like, we would never do this because it would be damaging. But like on the stage and said, like, this is who you guys are talking about. Like all this adult, you know, drama is about a bunch of kids. Like, that's who we we should be centering. That's who we should be asking, like, what is best for our kids? And would we still behave this way? Um, Courtney, but it, why, do you think those, why do you think those parents bucked at, at integrating? Why do you think they bucked? What's your take on that? Part of it, in this case, that was really interesting was this was a school that that was kind of just diverse enough for white Oakland parents that it made them feel like, oh, I'm a good progressive. My kid goes to this school that's, you know, fairly high functioning with um, kids who don't all look like them that, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones point about like white parents want to see like three black kids in a classroom so they can feel like they're not making a racist choice. So then when the when the push came to shove and they said, oh, you know, you, you can be a part of this other school and we'll combine resources, combine teaching staff, you know, rising tide will lift all boats. It just bucked up against all of their ideas about themselves is like, no. And, and the rhetoric, I don't know, Kareem, if you remember, it was like these school board meetings went until two in the morning, but the rhetoric was very like, our school is a perfect place. The, the folks who didn't want to move, like our school is perfect. And it was just like, no, it's not perfect. You know, like this is all messy and we're all trying to do the best we can. And, you know, the ways in which people just sort of like hunker down when there's any suggestion, and this is to Kareem's point too, about, you know, reading approaches, like, we are so hardened. We hunker down when anyone threatens our ideas about how we do our jobs or where we send our kids to school. It just brings out the absolute worst in people, unfortunately. And that's part of why this education space is so volatile and and has the potential to be so transformational, which is like why I think Kareem and I, you know, are here on this podcast and why you're asking these questions, Tenzina, is like, 
it, it's a beautiful ground for actually trying to do something different in this country. But it's we we don't show up as our best selves quite often, and that's that's also heartbreaking. Quick follow up: If this, and I'm familiar with that situation, if the students at the quote unquote black school um, were achieving academically at a high level. Uh, equal to or better than the white school, do you think the white parents still would have had an issue integrating the school? Hmm. It's a really interesting question. Uh, I pose it it to you because we oftentimes center the racial question on, you know, our, our cultural affinities, which matters. And, but we never, we never push on that a little bit. And I would urge us to push on that a little bit. It's a yes. And yeah. What, What do you, what do you think? Well, the first thing is it just made me think, like, obviously, that is the goal. Like, why should that black school have to welcome white families in order to have the achievement scores and the reading levels that they want? Right. Which is like the most foundational question is like, why is why does integration even have to exist as like the premise for improving schools? Like that's racist in and of itself, which is why why all of this is complicated. But um I don't know, Cream. I think the families I knew and the reporting I did when I interviewed folks, the the sort of reputation of the black school was so deeply embedded in kind of the white gentrifying um, family culture that even, you know, one little kid I heard about said he he was at the Hill School and he was had to go to the therapist because he had been so traumatized by the school board meetings and about this idea that he was moving to this other school and he was so scared of going to this other school. And then the therapist said to him, like, hey, you realize that's the play this place. Like you play basketball there on the weekends because it was right near his house. He was actually traveling far to go to school. And the kid was like, that place? I love that place. Oh, that's what we've been talking about this whole time. And so for me, I just feel like my question is kind of would those families even register that the achievement was what it was because it feels like schools get this reputation among Oakland families and then like they cannot evolve the you know neighborhood gossip about it. It's like you talk to someone who interacted with that school 10 years ago and you're like, oh, you should definitely avoid this school, even if things at that school are quite different now. So I guess my question is would would any of those families actually register that the achievement was what it but was. If they, but if they did register it. I don't know. It was known. I don't known. know. I think I like the key. question. I just, I really don't yeah, know. I agree with you. And what's, what's not up for debate is that you can't expect a parent of any ethnic group to leave one setting where their child is thriving or the school has a history of supporting children that end up thriving and send them to a school where the children are not thriving and think that there won't be some reverberations <laughs> on that. If you tell me I got to send my son to a white school because it's a white school and there's this greater project and that you think that my presence there, or his presence there, or our presence is going to help things out, but I see that they can't read. It's going to be a challenge. And I know that that's an un- unorthodox view, but it's difficult to do these things at knife point. It's difficult to do them by threat of being called a racist or this or an ideologue, because those issues, as was just mentioned here, they filter down to the kids. And all of a sudden the kids start othering each other. It shouldn't happen. But if this, if everybody can read, then people of goodwill would give them the opportunity. Um, you know, 
can self-select and organizationally, it's easier to move people around. Whatever you're, you know, if there is a greater project, it's a lot easier to do. But if kids are reading at 10% and, and then one school with 90% and another, and we're going we're gonna to mix it up, man, people will begin to attribute the differences to their own, their own biases and understand misunderstandings. And you're going to have problems. This has been an excellent, uh, really profound conversation about some of the issues that are affecting so many families across the country. Uh, we were joined by Kareem Weaver, Oakland NAACP Education Committee member, the co-founder of the reading advocacy organization Fulcrum, Oakland, and a longtime teacher, parent, and advocate. Courtney Martin is the author of Learning in Public, a book about her journey as a white parent in an Oakland public school where the largest racial group of students is Black. She's also the co-founder of the Bay Area Chapter of Integrated Schools. Kareem and Courtney, thanks so much for joining us. Next week, we're going to the Midwest, to Chicago, the Windy City, where there's a big class divide between schools on the south side and those on the north side. We'll talk to two parents who are working to bridge the gap, But surprise, surprise, it all comes down to money. One thing is true across the system, and that's that Black students are not getting what they need from Chicago public schools. This is a podcast from EdPost. I'm your host, Tanzina Vega. Our show is produced by Maureen Kelleher. Our sound editor is Iklas Salim. And music is by Ayana Jacobs-L. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.